Hey, good morning, church. How are we? All right. All right. There's one of us that's good this morning. It's good to, uh, good, to be, good to be with you. We are in Matthew's gospel. I'm just going to jump right in this morning. So you've got black Bibles around the room. Uh, feel free to interact with one of those. We're going to be on page 760. If you've got your own Bible, I hope you do. If you've got an app with you, um, we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is a moment here still at the beginning of Jesus' great sermon on the mountain where he begins to really teach his people, teach his disciples who are gathered around him, and then crowds that are starting to really, really become interested in who he is and what he's up to. Now, he begins to teach them the ways and the norms of his kingdom. Last time we were together, well, last time we were together was Easter. How many were at Easter with us last week? How much fun did we have together? Just a little bit? All right. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It's becoming one of the highlights to gather with local churches. We're kind of, we're offside if you showed up and we weren't here last Sunday. Sorry about that. Um, we uh, just growing in love with these other church families. Zach Adams did such a wonderful job just um, preaching from the end of Matthew's gospel, giving us an idea of, of how Jesus closes this down. And Jesus will even touch on some of those themes that Zach touched on about following his commands in this text that we're in this morning. Jesus has opened his sermon with the Beatitudes. He's explaining the character traits of the people of God. And then two weeks ago, we talked about how the church is to be salt and light in the world. We are to have a preserving effect, pushing back darkness, holding back darkness, as well as an illuminating effect on the world around, showing what truth is. All truth is God's truth given by him. And so we are to be a people who live according to what is true. And God himself is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now, this morning, we get into this passage where Jesus talks about his fulfillment of the law. Read with me in Matthew 5, 17. It says this, do not think, so this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, that's shorthand for the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's the smallest letter in the Greek uh, alphabet. They were reading many of them from a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Not an iota, not a dot. The dots were these, these apostrophes and little dots around Hebrew letters that would turn them into vowels and, and, and shape the Hebrew language. So he's saying not an iota. In your Greek Old Testament, not a dot in your Hebrew Old Testament will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then this perplexing verse, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus speaking. This is God's word. Father, would you open it up to us this morning, even as we just get in as introduction? Would you give us hearts to want to know how the Old Testament comes to life for us? Would you help us to have hunger? Would you give us, Holy Spirit, hunger that makes the Old Testament come alive? 
hunger to see it, hunger to love it, hunger to learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What is Jesus doing in this passage? That's a question that I, it's, it, as I really started to dive into this portion here, it's, it, feel, it felt so disjointed to me. We have a mention of the prophets in verse 10, where Jesus said that, that the people of Israel and others persecuted the prophets who were before, but we really don't have any mention of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament up to this point, and Jesus hasn't alluded to any of that. I, I, it feels disjointed. It feels the Matthew's gospel, as I've approached it over the course of my life, has felt like a, a kind of a random collection of stories. And I haven't really seen a thread that runs through, kind of tying it all together. And the more and more time that I'm spending in Matthew, I'm understanding that those threads are absolutely present. But they were written to Jews with a knowledge of the law, a knowledge with Israel's history that was far greater than, than what we understand it today. And so it can be hard for Western minds, now Western, uh, Western people, to, uh, to understand what's really at play here. And so it's felt disjointed. It seems almost like Jesus is answering a question here that's not even being asked. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I haven't. I've come to fulfill them. Or he's coming to address an accusation that isn't being leveled. But let's zoom out for a moment and remember our context. From now all the way through the summer, we're going to stay in Jesus's words, his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're just going to piece by piece just chew on it over the course of the summer. And so we are taking a great deal of time to spend, or we're spending a great deal of time on something that happened in, their, in, in this moment in a short amount of time, just a day or two, likely Jesus was giving this sermon to his disciples and to these crowds. So because we're doing a deep dive and we're focused in on something that occurred in a short period of time, we can tend to lose uh, understanding of the context, the big story, what's going on, what Matthew is trying to do in his gospel. And just before Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end of Matthew chapter 4, the very last section of verses, Matthew foreshadows what he would then be spending his time in chapters 5 through 9 doing. So he said that Jesus went all all throughout Galilee, the beginning of his ministry, teaching. He was proclaiming the good news of his kingdom, and he was healing every disease and affliction among the people. And then Matthew notes, and great crowds begin to follow him. And, the, and then at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the crowds come to him. He goes up on the mountain, very Moses-like, and he begins to teach his disciples and the people. So Matthew, at, at, in, in chapter 4, by saying he's teaching and proclaiming, he's going to unpack exactly the content of what Jesus was teaching and proclaiming in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then in chapters 8 and, nine, 8 and 9, Matthew is going to begin to unpack and show how Jesus was healing the people and making them whole. Midway through chapter 9, we see the Pharisees begin to take notice of Jesus, and we begin to see the Pharisees start to harass Jesus. One of the Pharisees' chief accusations against Jesus was that he was breaking the law of God and thereby disregarding the Hebrew scriptures. So here's what is likely happening. 
on two levels here. Jesus is, he's preparing hand-picked disciples and the crowds, those in the crowds who want to be his disciples. He's preparing them beforehand to answer a question or an accusation that will come very soon. He's doing preparatory work here. He's prepping them for what's coming. Whether it's an internal question within them, like as good Jews, as people who were raised with the Torah, the, five book, the first five books of the Old Testament, people who read and trusted the prophets, they would internally be wondering probably to themselves when Jesus says things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you, whoa, 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 what's he doing with our Bible? What's he doing with the Hebrew scriptures? So likely that accusation or that question at least was internal within them, but also it's coming and it's going to be coming and it's going to be accumulating from the Pharisees who are coming and accusing Jesus of disregarding the Hebrew scriptures, abusing them, breaking them. In John chapter 10, at one point, Jesus would say that the law of God, the scriptures cannot be broken. So that's the context. Jesus is preparing disciples, preparing these crowds for questions that arise internally, as well as questions of him that will arise externally from the Pharisees. But here's our conundrum. Christians have a complicated relationship with the first half of our Bibles, don't we? We have a complicated relationship with the Old Testament. Some of the stories, they make sense to us. Many of the stories, they don't make sense to us. We don't understand the timing, we don't understand the people, we don't understand the customs, the moral laws, like the Ten Commandments, they make sense to us. They're good for society, good for civilization, but we don't know what to do with all of the ceremonial laws. We don't necessarily even know what to do with a lot of the sacrificial system and the offerings and the feasts and festivals and the civil laws that are meant to govern Israel legally. They don't seem very relevant for modern-day Americans. They don't seem very relevant for 19th-century Peruvians. They don't seem very relevant for 17th-century Japanese. Like, it, it, we don't know quite how to make sense of the civil laws, at least as it applies to us. Am I supposed to live this? Am I not? We, we, we can come and feel a lot of tension when we're reading the Old Testament. Here's kind of a big idea this morning. Jesus did not have a complicated relationship with his Bible. He did not have a complicated relationship with his Bible. He loved it. He quoted it often. He lived by it. And he upheld it with joy. I'm talking about the Old Testament. Uh, 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 a theologian named Frederick Dale Bruner, he says this. I think this is so helpful. You'll probably find yourself resonating with it. Our love for the Old Testament might increase if we occasionally called it Jesus's Bible instead of the Old Testament. For this book was Jesus' personal library. It was a shelf of books. The only glimpse we get of Jesus in his youth is his sitting with the Bible teachers, asking and answering questions about these books. Jesus' ministry in the Gospels reveals a remarkable prior immersion in Scripture. Thus, in owning an Old Testament, we have the exciting privilege of owning Jesus' personal library. The purpose of this paragraph, he's talking about what Jesus is speaking of, about fulfilling or abolishing the law here. He says, the purpose of this paragraph, which I hear as Jesus' first command is this, to plant within us Jesus' respect for Hebrew scripture. 
We need this respect. Here's where it hits home because let's admit it, the Old Testament is not always an easy book to like. There are a lot of tracks that are, if not dry, at least hard scrabble, hard to find our way around, and sometimes even seemingly impassable. You resonate with that a little bit? How do I make sense of the Old Testament? This passage, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, where Jesus is talking about abolishing or fulfilling, he's talking about the endurance of the law and the prophets or the Hebrew Bible. This passage is about big picture principles. It's not speaking into all of the details of how the law works, where it applies for modern day believers, where it doesn't apply. It's about big picture principles. So I want, um, I want you to keep that in mind this morning. I was, as I was preparing, just struggling with, man, like we do have such a complicated relationship with the Old Testament, Jesus' Bible. I wanna bring us into some clarity there and recognizing like you cannot do that in a 30 minute message or a 35 minute message message. Like, as the people of God, it's on you and I to lean in, to find good resources, and to uncover the, 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 the value of the Old Testament for us, where the laws do apply, where they don't any longer because of Christ. So I've got two points this morning. The two points are this. How did Jesus view the Hebrew Bible and by implication, there's a kind of a question under that. What does that even have, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with us? And my second point is, there is a kind of righteousness that Jesus requires that he talks about in verse 20. He talks about our righteousness needing to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. That can be confusing to Christians and followers of Jesus. So those are the two points this morning. Here's kind of a, a, a big idea answer on the first point. How did Jesus view the Hebrew Bible and what does it have to do with us? How Jesus thinks of the Bible should give shape and texture to how we think about it and interact with it. How he views it should give shape and texture to how you and I interact with it. Did he disregard it? No, he didn't. Do we disregard it? No, we shouldn't. Have heaven and earth passed away? No, I don't think that they have. So therefore, the, whole, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures are still in play. Let's take the passage on the nose this morning, verses 17 and 18. Jesus comes in hot saying, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. It's likely got the actual law of God in view as well as the entire Old Testament because it's the carrier of the law. None of it will pass away until all is accomplished. When he's speaking here of law and prophets, that is shorthand for the Hebrew Scriptures. The law is the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Israelites referred to their Bibles as the law and the prophets. So you've got the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, and then you have the remainder of Scripture, sometimes called the writings and the prophets, but you can use the phrase prophets to just encompass all that's in the wisdom literature, like Proverbs and Song of Solomon, as well as everything that was written by prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and also the minor prophets, Zechariah, Malachi, Obadiah, all of those 
those smaller books. They're called major prophets because they're large in scope, and they're called minor prophets because their writings are very small. So Jesus is saying he comes to fulfill all of what the Hebrew scriptures looked forward to and required, and he did not come to abolish it. He did not come to do away with it. To, do, to abolish something is to do away with it entirely. And Jesus is explicit in this passage. That's not what he's doing. And that's not even how he interacts with his own Bible. Something else I want you to notice this morning is notice how Jesus begins to bring forward his authority in this passage. Look at what he says. He says, for truly I say to you, and then again in verse 20, he says, for I tell you, He's bringing forward his authority here. He's not putting a note in the suggestion box. He's actually making a decree here as one who has authority. The way that he's speaking is similar, but superior to the way Old Testament prophets spoke. Old Testament prophets, they would come speaking, thus says the Lord. The Lord says. Sometimes they would even just write down, they'd say, here's what the Lord says, and they'd have it written verbatim, and then God would be speaking in the first person. For example, the first lines of the Ten Commandments, uh, which God gave to Moses. Moses would say, and God spoke all these words, saying, and then he'd step off stage left, and he'd let the the word of the Lord speak. And the Lord would say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first of the the 10 commandments. Here's what Matthew is doing as, as, uh, here's what Jesus is doing, and Matthew is recording it accurately. Jesus is saying, he's speaking in the first person. He's saying, truly, I say to you, I tell you. He's not saying the Lord says to you. He's saying, I say to you. What Matthew, by recording this, what he means to do is he means for those hearing Jesus' sermon in the moment and those hearing uh, by proxy, those hearing it now, he's asking that we would have ears to hear and hearts willing to recognize Jesus' authority as he's speaking. He's speaking as God. Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount as God. For I tell you, truly I say to you. Matthew, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, will have this little paragraph where he he notes that the people were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he didn't teach as their scribes and Pharisees, but he taught as one who had authority, one who actually spoke as God. Now, according to Jesus, not one part of the law and prophets, the Hebrew Bible, Jesus' Bible, not even the smallest parts will become void until all is accomplished. That's why our Bibles still have two parts. We have the first part, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and we have the second part, the New Testament. The, The Hebrew Bible speaks of how God is working in the world, all that he's up to, man and woman's creation, so humanity's creation, our fall, our rebellion against him, and how God began to put it all right. And in the Hebrew scriptures, they're continually sprinkling these messianic prophecies, pointing to one who would come, who would finally draw the people back to God by putting a new heart 
within them, changing them literally from the inside out rather than the outside in. There's some debate uh, to the scope of what Jesus means by all here, where he says heaven and earth won't pass away until all is accomplished. But it's reasonable to understand that what Jesus means by accomplished is his own complete fulfillment of the law as Messiah. And all of the promises that are wrapped up in this coming one who would finally and fully deliver God's people, not just from their outward enemies, but from their inward enemy, which is far more sinister, sin and death. Remember where we are in the story as Matthew is writing this. This is still in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? So all is not yet accomplished here. Jesus hasn't yet fulfilled some of these prophecies. He hasn't yet gathered all of his disciples together. He hasn't yet preached in all of the cities that the Father is directing him to preach to. He hasn't yet been handed over to the Romans to be beaten and flogged and crucified He hasn't yet, as he's speaking these words to the crowd, been buried in a rich man's tomb. He hasn't yet risen from the grave. He hasn't yet given the Holy Spirit to his people. His name and good news hasn't yet been preached to all people, tribes, and nations, and he hasn't yet returned to gather his church at the end of human history. They were living in the already. The Messiah is here. The king of the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God has come. We are still living in the the already but not yet of human history, though we're a little further along the continuum. Jesus has been, he has fulfilled all of the prophecies. He has been delivered up to be crucified. He has risen from the grave. He has given the spirit to his people. But the gospel, the good news of Christ has not yet been Preach to all people's tribes, nations, and tongues, and he has not yet returned to gather his people to himself. And so even here, even right now, this morning in 2021, we are living in the already and the not yet. Now, I do have to say something that there is, there are good texts in the New Testament to help us distinguish. This is probably a question that's starting to bubble up in you. Which parts of the law are to be upheld for us today? And which parts have been fulfilled, not abolished, but fulfilled, made complete by Jesus's life? And therefore, they're no longer in play for us. For example, the the civil laws meant to govern the kingdom of Israel. Israel ceased to be a kingdom in 70 AD. So what do we do with that? But that's not actually the point. Remember, this is a passage here in Matthew about principles, not about particulars. That's not the point of, the particulars are not the point of Jesus' words in this passage. His words were spoken in the moment about how he viewed and how he upheld his Bible, how he lived by it, how he saw it as authoritative, not just for his time then, but actually for all time. Here's the second point this morning. There is a kind of righteousness that Jesus does require. There's a kind of righteousness that Jesus requires as king of his kingdom. And apparently it must exceed that of the scribes and that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes were absolute pros at following orders and carrying out commands. 
You know that person at work who lives by the book and makes sure everybody else around them does too? They're JV. The Pharisees were varsity. They went full pro. They absolutely wanted to honor God and to follow the rules to a T. Actually, the word Pharisee, it was a name that was given to them by outsiders. They didn't actually take it on themselves. They referred to themselves as teachers of the law, but people around them referred to them as the Pharisees. Do you know what Pharisee means? It means separatist. That's what it actually means, literally. Pharisee means separatist. They were people who separated themselves from common people. They were incredibly serious about keeping God's law, and they were incredibly serious about keeping the stain of sin out of the kingdom of Israel and the people of Israel, thereby, in their view, protecting Israel from corrupting influences. The, the New Testament, our New Testament, rightly portrays the Pharisees in Jesus' time as unbending legalists, which is true, absolutely. But um, with some human sympathy here, I think we should look at them and try to understand where they were coming from. It's very much the case that their desire to keep God's commands had a noble beginning. Likely, the Pharisees, this group of separatists, they began to originate about 500 years before Jesus came on the scene, during the time of the Babylonian exile. The people of God were no longer a sovereign nation. They no longer had a land of their own. God said, I will show you a land of promise. That land was taken from them, or rather, they were taken from it. Their temple was destroyed. Their capital city was destroyed. And they were living among the Babylonians and then later the Persians as captives, oppressed, literal slaves. And so these separatists within Israel, they began as a grassroots movement of people who desired to see Israel remain faithful to God. They were a group of people who discovered the law and called the people of Israel back to obedience to God's law as much as they possibly could in a foreign nation. They saw themselves as purists. Maybe even in our day, it would be like a constitutionalist and gatekeepers of Jewish worship according to the law. Now, you and I know, we know just how easy it can be to begin with good intent and to begin with wholeheartedness and somewhere along the way, we fall off and we begin to lose our hearts. We begin to keep up appearances while our heart within us is dull, feels dead, unengaged. It's probably um, true of some of us, or maybe even many of us in the room this morning. Like gathering with the local church is a sort of going through the motions for you right now. Where do you see this at play in your own world? Your heart started in a place, I'm, speak, I'm speaking spiritually. Your heart started in a place of engagement with the Lord. And then along the way, it began to cool and to cool and to cool. And so there are motions and activity that are going on within your world. But the heart feels in many ways unengaged or just dull to the voice of God. Lacking hunger for him. Uh, this is uh, uh, being a pastor 
any kind of vocational ministry, it's not just true of pastors and vocational ministry leaders, but there's an acute uh, experience of this that I experience on the regular, where my vocation, it's calling, but it's still vocation, is to, in some ways, do things for God. And it can be really, really, really difficult for me to keep my heart in the midst of it. And I experience constant seasons of dullness of heart. And they come in waves. And they come often. And sometimes they're more serious than others. Remember how we started the year with abiding? And this push to abide. How are you doing with that? Or has your heart grown dull and abiding and listening to the scriptures and making space to hear, making space for silence and solitude? I'm in this, I'm full on on the struggle bus right now in that category. It's far more easy for me to do for God than to be with God. That's the nature of the battle that I face. And I think that that would be true of me if I were not a pastor, if I were still a, managing a tile and stone warehouse or still operating a business. Like, that would still be true of me, where my heart goes in waves. Where do you see that in play in your own world as it relates to the Lord? He's calling you to turn to him. He's calling you toward repentance. By the time in history when the Pharisees and Jesus begin to tangle, begin to clash, this was Jesus' precise criticism of them. That they were dull of heart, closed down in the heart, but they looked awesome on the outside. They got it all right on the outside. They kept the law, but inside they were full of dead man's bones. That's Jesus' language dead men's bones. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 23 about how he just begins to come. If you see Jesus as just like, just this like frilly dude with like nice, like straight hair, blue eyes, wearing his little, his little toga thing, just peace, peace, peace and harmony to all of the people. I think you've got a wrong view of Jesus. He was absolutely gentle and absolutely fierce. He says to these Pharisees, these are the most powerful people in the land, literally holding his life in their hands. They could cry out for him to be crucified and it would come to pass. They did. He'd say this before that, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, the spice rack, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. Yes, tithe. These you ought to have done while not neglecting the others. And then he would go on. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Focus minoring on, uh, majoring rather on the minor things. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He'd go on to call these Pharisees children of hell. 
in the same little conflict. He'd also call them broods of vipers. Jesus is dead serious about his people keeping his commands from hearts that mirror his. He is dead serious about it. Whether they're the Old Testament heavy commands like do not murder or some they would consider lighter commands like paying restitution for a wrong that you had done for a neighbor. If a cow or a piece of you know, livestock wandered onto your property and, 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 and died or you took it as your own, paying restitution, that would be considered a lighter command. Now remember in this passage that we're in in Matthew, context here is king. When Jesus is giving this teaching, all of the law for his hearers is in play. The new covenant has not yet been fully realized through his life, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, through his ascension, and through the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in the life of believers. And so the moral and the ceremonial and the civil law for Israel is binding, and it's still in play here for them. But now, in this moment, Jesus is talking to this crowd about relaxing and keeping commandments. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like Jesus is now talking to this crowd uh, with both hands. He's standing sideways in the middle of the road and he's talking to them with one arm extended this way and one arm extended this way. One arm is pointing back at Old Testament law. One arm is beginning to point forward at the new commands that he is about to lay down, the greatest of which is love, which he would tell his disciples explicitly in John. He's saying, don't relax or abolish any of the Old Testament commands. If you do in word or in practice, those who look to you will do the same. Our words are not the only thing that teaches. Our way of life equally teaches. And so if somebody, if, if you're telling, if you're parenting your kids, those of you who have them, if you are parenting your kids saying, do what I say, not what I do, that's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Our words and our way of life teaches. Rather, keep the commands given to you by God. Uphold your Bible by, by upholding the law given by Moses and the prophets. It's like that's what Jesus is saying here. And, and Jesus then will go on and he'll actually bring, bring greater clarity, interpretation to those Old Testament commands. He'll say, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, I say to you, this is where we're gonna be next week, murder always starts internally in the heart. Deal with your anger and you will not be in danger of breaking the command not to murder. Or you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, notice Jesus' authority, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his, in, in his heart. He's bringing clarity and interpretation to the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying to his audience, love your Bible and listen to me. People will come accusing, lying, frothing at the mouth, saying that I'm breaking the scripture. I'm not. 
I'm bringing clarity to what God requires. Do not lose your heart because your heart is what ultimately drives your life. When our hearts are engaged, when our hearts are ruled by Jesus, the result is not finding loopholes. The result is not skipping steps or disregarding God's heart in any way. The kingdom of God is God's rule over the hearts of men and women. And the way of this kingdom then, as our hearts are ruled by King Jesus, is to live the way of Jesus and to teach others to live the way of Jesus. And wholehearted servants of Christ who look to God and seek to live and speak with integrity are called great in the kingdom of Jesus. The way to wholeheartedness is inside-outside transformation. We can't not ever afford to lose hold that we are poor in spirit and in constant need of the careful, providing, merciful, sustaining, keeping, secure hand of God. The Pharisees' righteousness at the time of Jesus went no deeper than the exterior. They lost poverty of spirit. They looked to the word of God, but they missed the mercy of Christ right in front of them. But for the person who keeps hold of poverty of spirit, who keeps hold of humility before the Lord, they, we, are washed clean inside, and the outside begins to match thus exceeding the exterior-only righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of was having lost their hearts. Their hearts were no longer soft before the Lord. They were no longer a repentant people. They kept the outward appearances, but they were full of dead men's bones. Even in times of ease, even in times of great pressure like persecution, our outward lives through the grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit begin to mirror what's happening on our interior. And this is what it means to have integrity before the Lord. And it's God's doing. This is God's word. I realize I've left a lot unsaid this morning. But primarily, what we need to be about as a people is laying our hearts open before the Lord. Interior righteousness always leads to exterior righteousness. And openness before the Lord is the pathway, wholeheartedness before the Lord is the pathway to seeing his work done on our behalf as sufficient. So we no longer have to clean it all up. We no longer have to perform. Now we're actually freed to confess. We're free to ask him for his help. We're free to ask our brothers and sisters for their help. And we can live as whole persons, sober as we really are. Amen. Father, speak. Give your people what they need. In Jesus' name, do it. Amen. Just a second, team. Just a second. You're good. You're good.
um, we've got a moment of, uh, we, we started to do this two weeks ago, and uh, it's called Q&R, question and response. We're going to take a few moments here. You can text your questions, literally you can text them to that email address, or you can text, uh, you can just uh, email it to that email address. If you've got questions, I don't know if some, do we already have some queued up? We've already got some queued up. So um, feel free, over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to take about five minutes just from you guys. I'm going to try to field things on the spot and try to bring some nuance and clarity. Now, here's a pressure that I feel in, in, internally. It's just because you're asking me the question and I've got a microphone on my face and a Bible in front of me, I, I have this weird pressure where I feel like I need to answer it. But I'm probably not going to be able to do that in every case. There are, there are going to be some things that I can bring clarity on, but if I don't have clarity or if my answer is too nuanced and it's just gonna spin a bunch of us out, then I'm just actually gonna step back from it and I'm gonna resist that pressure to be the Bible answer guy, all right? Fair? Great. What's our question? Give us one. On a daily basis, what is a good way to sharpen myself on the word of God? On a daily basis, what is a good way to sharpen myself on the word of God? Here's what I would say. From my own experience, it's to expose yourself to it. Make space to listen to it. Make space to read it. And resist the urge to read big swaths of scripture. There is a place for reading, reading long, you know, keeping up with the daily Bible reading plan, going chapters and chapters and chapters. But there is absolutely a space where you sharpen yourself on the word of God by slowing down in the scriptures. Secondarily, I would say, use tools, use good helps. Commentaries are very helpful. I can give you names and I can give you um, some suggestions on who to listen to. Websites are helpful. Don't just Google it indiscriminately and take the first thing that pops up, but begin to build a set of tools around you for faithful Bible teaching. The third thing that I will say for sharpening yourself with scriptures is invest in a study Bible. Invest in a very good study Bible. The ESV study Bible, the Christian Standard study Bible, the NIV study Bible. I've probably, uh, there's some that are good ones that I haven't even mentioned in this moment, but invest in a good study Bible. Next. Is this the conclusion of the Beatitudes? What is the connection between those blessings and qualities, and Jesus's value of the law. This is, the, the conclusion of the Beatitudes occurred with, uh, w really with um, his conclusion there in verse 10, verse 12, the conclusion of the Beatitudes. But there is still connection here. Um, I don't quite know how to answer the second part of this question. Uh, what is the connection between those blessings and qualities and Jesus's value of the law, other than, I'll just say this and then I'm gonna be quiet, the law was always meant to drive God's people to see their need. It exists, it exists as our guardian. It exists to show us, to, to, to 
build a picture and an understanding of the gap between God's holiness and our own sinfulness. And so the law was always meant to take us to the end of ourselves and to reach out for rescue and to reach out for mercy. And so the Beatitudes begin with a person who is poor in spirit and they end with a person who is willing to take on persecution for the sake of Christ. And so the Beatitudes show us a kind of progression and maturing that, that God does within our hearts as he moves us from poverty of spirit to being givers of mercy and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness all the way to the point of being able to stand up against great opposition. Let's do one more. How do I know what to obey in the Old Testament? Here's what I would say. Uh, begin with the moral law and go out from there. I can, if whoever asked that question, come up to me afterwards and I'll, I'll try to give you some resources um, to, to dissect between the, the types of law, what Christ has totally fulfilled and what no longer applies to us, which I would argue is the ceremonial law and the civil law for Israel. So the ceremonial law is the sacrificial system and the civil law are the, the, the laws that meant to were meant to guide uh, Israel. The moral law still stands. The, the do not lies, do not steal, do not murder, do not covet, have no other gods before me, those still stand. Additionally, in your Bible, if you're taking notes on this, Galatians 2 through 4, Romans chapters 5 through 7, 8, somewhere in there, 7 and 8, as well as Hebrews chapters 7 through 10 are going to help you understand where the law has ended for the Christian and where it still remains intact. Fair? Uh, would you stand with me this morning? Let's take uh, communion together, band.